daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Prime Minister of Solomon Islands hits back at criticism of deepening ties with China. American chief CEOs are calling the Biden administration to refrain from further China curbs. Former UN environment diplomat says China's remarkable progress in ecological civilization is a model for sustainable development. And Moscow has officially halted its participation in the Black Sea Grain Export Agreement. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Our top story, the Prime Minister of Solomon Islands, Manasseh Sagavari, has hit back at criticism of his nation's deepening ties with China, describing the narrow and coercive diplomacy against China-Solomon Islands relations as unneighborly. During a recent press conference, he said the United States and Australia had nothing to fear, emphasizing that China has never invaded or colonized any country. He added, targeting China-Solomon Islands relations is unneighborly, lacked respect, and was an interference in Solomon Islands' internal affairs. So for more on the remarks and China and Solomon Islands relations, we are joined by Dr. Chen Hong, President of the Chinese Association of Australian Studies, Director of Australian Studies Center at East China Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, based on the remarks, could you please brief us what has triggered the Prime Minister's statements? Yeah, uh, Prime Minister Sokovari's uh, remarks are quite straightforward, but they are not you know, some impulsive articulation of his sentiments. You know, the ABC, you know, Australia's national news agency, you know, describes that press conference as explosive. But there was nothing explosive or impulsive in Mr. Sogovari's uh, remarks. Quite the contrary, you know, Sogovari enunciated his uh, understanding of the Solomon Islands' relations with China and with some, you know, Western countries, in particular, you know, uh, Australia. Because, you know, as you know, the Solomon Islands is an independent sovereign country. But mm-hmm. as we know, the uh, Western countries, such as the uh, United States and uh, Australia have adopted a kind of condescending, you know, uh, attitude and hegemonistic approaches in their relations with the island countries. So invariably, they always impose their wills and wishes on small countries such, such as the Solomon Islands. Mm. Australia has always regarded the Pacific island countries as its domain of influence. Australia even calls uh, the South Pacific its own backyard. You know, you know, on one occasion, Mr. Sogavari commented on. Uh, the uh, disrespectfulness of such a label in you know, the backyard, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so backyard, he said, is where you dump your rubbish. You know, how can you call my country your backyard? So you now know, you know, why Mr. You know, Sogavari, you know, criticizes Australia as you as you said, you know, unneighborly. You know, mm-hmm. good neighbors don't treat each other in such a contemptuous and manipulative manipulative manner. Uh, could you please elaborate more on this interesting term, unneighborly? Mm. Does his characterization of this criticism hold any weight in context of international diplomacy? Yeah, definitely. You know, because actually, uh, diplomacy, international diplomacy is based upon you know good manners, you know, respect and trust. That is actually the basic you know motif for the uh, diplomacy. But you know, Western countries you know, they, they, they adopt a kind of you know coercive. You know, and bullying tactics. You know, for example, like Mr. Sovari also disclosed that the United States and Australia withdrew some of the aid funding that they previously promised. That is obviously a typical way of, you know, tactical bullying and coercion. The U.S. also does this with some other, you know, countries on other occasions. You know, if you don't obey, if you don't behave, if you don't do uh, as as we prefer, we'll pull out the financial aid to you, you know. So that kind, kind of, you know, bullying tactics used to work on some uh, countries, but this time they failed to intimidate, intimidate mm-hmm. the Prime Minister Sogavari. The Prime Minister criticized what he called narrow and coercive diplomacy targeting China-Solomon Islands relations. So in your view, what are the potential motivations behind such narrow and coercive diplomacy? And how does he reflect the broader geopolitical interests at play in the region? Historically, the South Pacific used to be you know, neglected by the, uh, the West. 
which regarded this region as, you know, geopolitically and geostrategically insignificant, especially after the end of the Cold War. But with the United States promoting the so-called, you know, Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, during the uh, uh, Trump and now Biden administration, the South Pacific has been given a kind of new strategic role that is to, to serve the uh, uh, strategic base or springboard for Washington's anti-China strategy. The United States and its allies and partners expect to make use of the uh, uh, Pacific Island countries as their pawns you know, to, to support the U.S. strategy to preserve its hegemony in the region. I think Prime Minister Solovari was definitely you know, pointing out the true nature of the fundamental purpose of the Western countries' approaches mm-hmm. in the Pacific. The uh, strategy and tactics to coax and coerce the island country to serve the uh, Western you know, anti-China aim rather than to serve the national interests of the island countries. As a matter of fact, I think the island countries, such as, in this case, the Solomon Islands, have the political wisdom and are judicious enough to see through the camouflage of nice talks of countries such as Australia and the United States, but they are able to preserve their own national sovereignty and independence. Mm-hmm. Professor Chen, to be more specific of mm. the U.S. and Australia's concern, one of the main issues raised by those two countries about Solomon's relations with China is the so-called Chinese security presence on the island through a bilateral security framework agreement. Even though the prime minister said the United States and Australia had nothing to fear, do you think the U.S. and Australia will choose to trust him? What do you think is the fundamental reason why the United States and Australia are trying to amplify this concern? Uh, the word security here, I think, has been misconstru- uh, misconstrued or even deliberately you know, used by some Western countries to mislead the international public opinion. What happened was that in 20, you know, 21, November 2021, mm-hmm. a serious you know, social unrest took place. In their, uh, in their Solomon Islands, in particular in the uh, capital, Honiara. There were demonstrations and violent you know, riots, many of which targeted as Chinese-owned or Chinese-run businesses and also shops in the Chinatown you know, area. The social unrest was instigated by some anti-China elements, and the Solomon Islands government you know, tried its best to put the uh, situation under control, but the island country had, was short of you know, politi- uh, police force. Uh, you know, police supplies and also policing capacity. So after the uh, unrest stopped, the, uh, the Solomon Islands government discussed with the Chinese poli- police authorities with request for, you know, help and support. And China, you know, responded positively with aid of supplies and also training mm-hmm. for the uh, Solomon's police. So in 2022, you know, an agreement was signed to secure the bilateral cooperation. So you see, in essence, it is the police force cooperation agreement to ensure social security in the uh, Solomon Islands. But the West has, you know, deliberately, you know, trying to, you know, distort the meaning of the word security. So by calling the bilateral uh, cooperation agreement as a security agreement, they mislead the public opinion to think that the uh, agreement is the military you know, agreements. And then they have been groundlessly talking about a Chinese military base in their Solomon. So lies, lies, lies. Mm-hmm. So when they repeat, they repeat the lies so many times, they expect to fabricate you know, the, the categorical China threat mythology. And the expressed purpose is to deter the Solomon Islands and some other you know, Pacific Island countries from carrying out the uh, successful cooperation with China. Mm-hmm. Professor Shen, it's also very interesting to see many Western media outlets have attempted to link the prime minister's criticism of other countries' interference uh, with his just-concluded visit to China. What's your take on this? How do you characterize the bilateral relations between China and the Solomon Islands after his visit? Yeah, first I'd like to comment on uh, the uh, interference on the internal affairs of the Solomon Islands mm-hmm. by some countries. You know, when the Solomon Islands established a diplomatic relationship with China in 2019, this uh, monumental step started a new era for the uh, China-Solomon Islands relationship. But mm-hmm. that also brought about displeasure disp- you know, from the Western countries, government officials at various levels from Australia, and also the, the, the United States went to Honiara to exert pressures on the government of the small country, the small island country. In particular, they slander the uh, cooperation with China with vicious lies, rumors, fabrications. Some people in Australia even suggested about a military invasion of the Solomon Islands to topple the Solomon government and install a political 
Western, you know, you know, particularly, you know, pro-Western new government. They have also been, you know, supporting openly and covertly some, you know, political forces and NGOs and some media outlets, encouraging, you know, regime change in the lawful and also unlawful means. However, the relationship between China and the Solomon Islands, you know, has, has been based, most importantly, based upon, you know, mutual trust, mutual understanding and mutual, uh, mutual benefits with the aim to bring about, you know, common common good, you know, for both countries. That is what characterizes the countries between our two countries. And that is exactly why our relationship has developed in such a, you know, successful way. As a matter of fact, what I, that I think, you know, uh, you know, you know, this differentiates, you know, China's attitudes and approaches to, you know, other countries like the Solomon Islands from what the Western countries have always been doing in a condescending and coercive way. Speaking of China's values when cooperating with other countries, the Prime Minister Sabari also said China has never invaded or colonized any country. So considering his assertion, how does this historical perspective influence the ongoing debate surrounding China's global influence and its impact on small nations like the Solomon Islands? As a matter of fact, before and after the uh independence of the Solomon Islands in 1978. You know, the, the Solomon Islands used to be under the uh, colonization of the United Kingdom. It also has a special relationship with Australia. In fact, in the early 1950s, there was the discussion about the possibility for Australia to annex the Solomon Islands. And also the United States also has its uh, interest in the country. In particular, during the Pacific War, you know, the Solomon Islands was used as a base, as a military base, and a springboard for the U.S. forces to advance on the uh, Japanese imperial forces. So you can see the uh, Solomons has been, you know, successively colonized, uh, taken advantage of, abandoned, and you know, strategically manipulated by Western powers. The Western countries, in spite of their, you know, sweet talks, as we said, you know, the sugar-coated words about the, the so-called alliance, have their own vested interests when they deal with countries like the Solomon Islands, and they never really take the Solomon Islands' long-term strategic national interest into their, uh, you know, consideration. From time to time, they adopt a kind of condescending attitude, hegemonistic approaches, even in the name of the so-called aid. You know, countries like Australia and the United States pour millions of dollars into the country. That is true. And Australia still remains the largest donor country for, you know, many of the Pacific Island countries. But mostly the money is used for the so-called systemic build-up, Mm-hmm. And also capacity building. Sounds good, you know, aren't they? But the s- systemic building and the capacity building are in essence basically is to, you know, uh, uh, you know, to install and impose the Western political system and the brainwash the uh, uh, island countries, people in particular, governments, officials and the public servants. So you see, fundamentally, the aim of the Western hegemon is to distance the uh, Pacific Island countries from China. So as to form an exclusive grouping in the Pacific, in the blueprint of Washington's, you know, in the Pacific strategy with the target of, you know, containing and deterring China's development. Mm-hmm. Professor Chen, from a broader picture, a recent report shows some U.S. senators said they think NATO expansion into Asia is inevitable and the AUKUS cooperation, the trilateral security partnership mm-hmm. between the United States, UK and Australia is a very good start. What do you think of the role of AUKUS in the context of NATO's eastward expansion? How will such a statement affect regional stability? Well, I think NATO basically is just like an you know, outdated fossil of something like a dinosaur, you know, which the United States and some of the Western allies try to revive. You know, because, you know, after the end of the Cold War, there's no reason of existence, raison d'etre, for, you know, NATO. Uh, but NATO never, you know, really, you know, feel, you know, to be contented to, you know, to, to be outdated. Well, not only it's, you know, revived, it actually has been growing like a gigantic monster which has been, you know, disrupting the peace and stability of Europe. And now we see, you know, the uh, eastward expansion of NATO has catastrophically, you know, sabotaged the peace and stability uh, in Europe. So the U.S. has, in fact, been trying to make NATO into a military arm of its uh, Indo-Pacific strategy to stop and also to sabotage China's, uh, uh, you know, developments. So the expansion of NATO into Asia, you know, with AUKUS, with various, you know, formations, in fact, a sinister, you know, you know, advance 
to serve the strategic interests, to preserve and also strengthen the U.S. hegemony. That is why, you know, as I said, you know, that is why the Pacific Island countries have become suddenly important in the U.S. strategic chessboard uh, of the region. The Pacific should be an ocean of peace and prosperity, but the intrusion of such a behemoth like, uh, you know, NATO would definitely harm the regional peace and stability and, in fact, peace and stability of the world. Thank you very much, Professor Chen, for your analysis and expertise. That's Professor Chen Hong, President of the Chinese Association of Australian Studies and the Director of Australian Studies Center at East China Normal University. Reuters has reported that U.S. chief company executives have met with top Biden administration officials to discuss China policy. This is the latest move the U.S. semiconductor lobby group has taken to urge a halt to more curbs under consideration. They called on the Biden administration to refrain from further restrictions on chip sales to China. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with the chief company executives about industry and supply chains after his recent trip to China. China accounted for 180 billion U.S. dollars in semiconductor purchases, more than a third of the world's total, and is the largest single market. So for more on this, our Zhang Yang spoke with Andy Mock, a senior research fellow at Center for China and Globalization. So, Andy, the U.S. chip company executives, they called on the Biden administration to refrain from further restrictions on chip sales to China. So why is it and how will the further restrictions damage the U.S. semiconductor industry and disrupt the supply chains? Well, Zhao Yang, you're absolutely correct that there is uh, concern, even a rising tide of alarm uh, amongst technology executives in the United States, uh, especially those uh, in the semiconductor industry, because of these uh, provocative and destructive and self-destructive moves by the Biden administration to try to undermine China's technological development. So what is, I think, of greatest concern uh, to the executives of companies like NVIDIA, like Intel, Uh, other companies that are in the semiconductor space, is that so much of their revenue is dependent on China and their uh, strategic competitiveness depends on continued research and development uh, that requires an enormous amount of revenue. I think something like uh, almost half of their revenue uh, goes to R&D, and if they cannot keep up, Uh, they fear, and I think rightly so, they fear that they will then be left behind. Mm. So this is their concern. Now, from the Biden administration's perspective, I think the big problem is it it thinks it's winning, but it actually may be winning what's called a pyrrhic victory, meaning that the cost of victory is so high that it will actually end up being a devastating defeat. And how do you see this difference between the U.S. politicians and the business circle? Well, I think, frankly speaking, um, business people are much more pragmatic, much closer to reality. Because, again, when we look at these semiconductor uh, business, American semiconductor businesses, um, upwards of 20% of their revenue comes from China. And, again, as I mentioned, they have to invest so much of their revenue, not only in R&D, but capital expenditures to keep up with each new generation of technology. So right now they have a virtuous cycle going, that China's growing, it's becoming increasingly important technologically to the world, so that creates more demand for semiconductor chips, which is good for NVIDIA, it's good for Intel, it's good for LAM research, applied materials, all of these uh, American companies. Uh, the EDA software companies uh, like Synopsys, Cadence, uh, that are all uh, benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. So uh, by breaking this chain, uh, this is going to do, I think, enormous damage to the long-term competitive position of these American tech companies. Mm-hmm. And of course, if that goes, that's not good for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, not good for American politicians in the long run. Mm. Uh, why did the Biden administration consider another round of curbs or restrictions on chip exports to China? What's in their consideration? Well, you know, I think that they are so maniacally 
focused uh, on stopping China, undermining China, um, that they will do this even at enormous cost and damage to American businesses and uh, to American uh, economic national security as well, frankly. And this uh, kind of uh, tunnel vision uh, really, I think, is not serving anyone's interests. Mm-hmm. And now the U.S. Semiconductor Industry Association also called to ease the tensions and seek solutions through dialogue, not further escalation. So what should or could be done by the Biden administration at this moment, do you think? Well, again, you know, I see that there has been concern all along uh, from American businesses, American technology businesses. Uh, and now that's rising, uh, turning into a tsunami of alarm. So hopefully uh, that the Biden administration will take heed and take this into consideration and moderate uh, these actions towards China. And again, I think this is in the best long-term interest of the United States, because what this is forcing China to do is to develop its own uh, semiconductor supply chain. Mm -hmm. And what do you make of the U.S. curbs on China's access to the advanced technology? And what will this impact on the U.S., China, and also the technological development around the world? Well, you know, there's a couple ways to look at this, Zhao Yang. So one, in a way, it's quite ironic that uh, the U.S. for decades has said that, uh, you know, what makes the U.S. exceptional and successful is its commitment to a free market uh, ideology. And that private companies, when they can make decisions that are in their own economic interest, create the greatest good for all. Um, and it seems like you know, they, they are now abandoning this belief. And I think this is actually quite an important part of the story. Um, but the other is that by slowing down the overall progress of, the, of mankind, of course, that's not good. The world. And the U.S. also led initiative involving the Netherlands and Japan to impose the uh, export restrictions on the most advanced uh, semiconductor technology. And this is, of course, uh, primarily targeted at China. So, Andy, how do you think the Netherlands and Japan will be affected? Well, this is a complex question. Um, I think that the Japanese businesses and the the Dutch businesses like the ASMLs, um, the Tokyo Electrons, etc., will suffer. And again, I think they're uh, in many ways in the same boat as the American technology companies. Um, It's the governments of these countries, I think, that are in an especially awkward situation in that they clearly recognize their own national uh, self-interest does not lie in going along uh, with these uh, escalatory economic attacks against China. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm sure there's enormous arm twisting and uh, uh, other kinds of pressure being applied uh, behind the scenes that makes it very difficult for them to resist. So uh, I think, you know, like, um, like anything, uh, when something is pushed beyond a certain point, it breaks. And, you know, one way we can understand this is the U.S. as the puppet master uh, pulling the strings. Here. If it pulls too hard, the strings may snap. Mm-hmm. And China is increasingly emphasized the self-reliance on the advanced technology. The country is making great efforts to boost innovation. So can China achieve self-reliance on the semiconductor industry, do you think? Well, you know, I've been following the story of Huawei over the last few years, and when the U.S. applied these unprecedented sanctions against Huawei, its very survival was in doubt. And yet, it not only has survived, it is thriving uh, by developing new businesses, for example, in cloud computing and autonomous driving, uh, as well as uh, rebuilding its smartphone business uh, devoid of American technology and components and may come back stronger than ever. And Huawei may end up, as a result of this, occupying an even more central place in the global technology ecosystem. And if we look at this as a, as a case study and perhaps a harbinger uh, that China might follow the same path, that in the short term, uh, these 
uh, sanctions are going to be very, very difficult for China. But it's only going to spur China to become more successful in the long run while leaving U.S. businesses behind. Mm. So is decoupling happening on the technology world? And how could this impact the global industrial and supply chains? Well, you know, I think we see it impacting it already um, in that with semiconductors, it's a very tightly integrated uh, supply chain and that this is causing disruptive impacts uh, in it. So I think, you know, anyone that is uh, in this industry would love to see, uh, you know, these kinds of tensions go away, singling out one country for political reasons uh, is not really uh, in the overall interest of the industry or, frankly, the world at large. That was Andy Mock, a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. More to come, China's remarkable progress in ecological civilization is a model for sustainable development, says a former UN environment diplomat. You've been listening to Road Today. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions and insightful analysis with Road Today. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. A former UN environment diplomat says China's remarkable progress in ecological civilization is a model for sustainable development. Former executive director of the UN environment program, Eric Solheim, attributes these achievements to the China's commitment to transforming its development to focus on high-quality growth that incorporates environment policies. Solheim noted that China has moved faster towards an ecological civilization than any other nation. In an interview with my colleague Xu Yawen, Soheim says China has demonstrated country can create jobs and achieve economic prosperity while maintaining sustainable development. Mr. Soheim, China has carried out a series of fundamental and long-term work in building an ecological civilization. And as an expert in the field, could you elaborate on China's efforts in protecting biodiversity, addressing climate change concerns, and implementing green development plans over the years? Well, thank you for this uh, great question. Uh, I have seen a sea change in Chinese environment policies in the last 10 years. Ten years ago, uh, growth in China was very gray. Now it's green. Ten years ago, the entire focus was economic growth. Now it's about high-quality growth. So there has been absolute sea change. I think everyone in the world now knows that China is the lead nation on basically every environment technology. What is less known is the change in environment policies. Look, in Shenyang province, they have uplifted the rural areas and brought put away pollution and made them absolutely beautiful and fantastic. This process of rectifying the pollution to the rivers has happened much faster than anywhere else in the world. In in Mongolia, uh, it's best practice anywhere in the world for greening of deserts. President Xi just went to Guangdong and launched a mangrove restoration center in the city of Shenzhen and made a lot of policies for the restoration of mangroves. China is the, by far the biggest tree planter in the world. And finally, let me mention the new national park plans. Let's give credit to the Americans. The national parks is an American idea. The first national park in the world came in Yellowstone in America in 1872. It was inaugurated by the American war hero, President U.S. Grant. But then it spread to the entire world. And now China has taken the lead. And there is an amazing big program for national parks. 70% of them will come in Qinghai and Tibet, but they're national park plans all over China, and it's so good to see. Mm-hmm. In the past few decades, China achieved industrialization, a process that typically takes developed countries hundreds of years to complete. 
So this rapid development led to some environmental issues. However, in recent decades, we have noticed that Chinese government has been dedicated to balancing environmental protection with robust economic growth. So what's the importance of incorporating the principle of harmony between humanity and nature into China's modernization process? This is, of course, incredibly important to Mother Earth. We have just one planet. We share it, all of us, European, Chinese, Indians. It's just one planet. So protecting it is very, very important for humanity. But it's also very important for the people of China. Look, 10 years ago, when I visited Beijing, sorry to say, it was a hell of pollution. The air was thick of smoke. Now, last time I was in Beijing earlier this year, was no smoke, no pollution. Uh, you can see the sun all the time. When jogging in Beijing, I had no no complaints because I was just breathing fresh, nice air. So protecting Mother Earth is also very, very uh, people-centered. And when President Xi was then party secretary of Shenzhen back in 2005, made this very famous speech in the hillside city of Anji. He said that, Lucid waters and lush mountains are as valuable as silver and gold. That points to the importance of nature, but it also points to the enormous importance for humans. If you protect nature better, it's so valuable to us. And by the way, we can also create numerous jobs and economic prosperity by going green. Actually, a few years ago, I was on a business trip to Anzi in Zhejiang province. And I did mm -hmm. a number of stories about how people has been making a profit, making a living based on bamboo production and also selling white tea. And then and also tourism is the biggest industry in the world today, creating numerous jobs all over the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and Anji and many other towns, of course, benefit from ecotourism when they keep the nature beautiful and create a beautiful China. Mm -hmm, indeed. Uh, we know China has pledged to achieve carbon peak by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. This is very significant and has been widely welcomed as the world faces a crucial time in the global fight against climate change. So um, where does China stand on this roadmap? Based on your observation, what's your take of the country's progress towards achieving this goal? As China moved faster in bringing everyone out of poverty than any other nation, China in the last decade has also moved faster towards an ecological civilization than any other nation. This is not to say that there's not a lot more to be done, obviously, uh, but fantastic progress has been made in the last decade. And I think most importantly, China has understood that going green creates also an economic opportunity. In the past, there was a choice. I mean, if you wanted to to move into an ecological, uh, in, into a green future, it was a price to pay because we wouldn't grow that fast. Growth was linked to coal. Growth was linked to destruction of nature. But in the 21st century, we can achieve both, both econo economy and ecology. Mm -hmm. And since China has no traditional trademarks in the global marketplace, I mean, there's no Chinese Toyota. I mean, Toyota is known everywhere in the world. There's no similar brand from China. China has very, very wisely jumped into the green future and creating jobs there. Mm -hmm. I mean, now BYD is the biggest producer of electric cars in the world, passing Tesla. China's passed Japan when it comes to export oil of cars. And that's because China didn't stay in the past, but right into the future of electric cars. And by the way, there are many more brands like NIO and Hongji and Xpeng and many, many other brands, not just BYD. Actually, BYD is one of the suppliers uh, electric vehicles battery to Tesla. It was recently announced. So um, in the face of global environment challenges, China has been strengthening international cooperation. Um, for example, the country has signed a MOU with the UN Environment Program on constructing a Green Belt and Road Initiative. And on top of that, China and over 30 other participating countries in the BRI have jointly launched this Green Belt and Road Partnership. So what significance does China's green development model hold for other developing countries? And how can the Green BRI assist countries and regions along the route in improving their environment and providing sustainable development solutions? 
developing nations can learn a lot from China. Obviously, they cannot copy China. First of all, China has a unique governing system, which cannot easily be adopted anywhere else in the world, and China doesn't try to export its political system to Africa or Latin America. Uh, secondly, China has a huge market. If you create 1.4 billion people without any trade barriers, if you produce something in Guangdong, you can sell it in, in Mongolia or Heilongjiang without any problem. Africa is 54 separate markets, some of them very, very small, and it's much more difficult to develop, say, green industries. So other developing countries can learn a lot from China, from the technological development, from the strong leadership from the center, and also from creating the culture of awareness of the people, say, by slogans like green is gold or beautiful China or ecological civilization. All these are Chinese concepts, and it points uh, in a direction, and it mobilizes people for the green programs. So the rest of the world, please learn from China, but adopt it to your specific circumstances, whether you're in Africa, Latin America, India, wherever. Mm-hmm. And Belt and Road is, of course, a unique opportunity for this learning process. Uh, it makes the opportunity for Chinese companies to invest and technology transfer. Basically, happens in the private sector. It's not a government affair. But if, say, BYD invests in Brazil, which they just said they will, well, that would be a lot of technology transfer from BYD to Brazilian staff and Brazilian customers and to Brazil. And maybe Brazil also in the future will build their own domestic car industry based on this technology transfer. Mm-hmm. So Belt and Road provides this opportunity for investment, for people-to-people contact, for learning from each other. Belt and Road is a fantastic opportunity for mutual learning and for Chinese green investments. And I'm proud to be vice president also of the uh, Belt and Road Green Development Coalition, where so many countries are coming together for this to happen. And mind you, 150 countries in the world have joined Belt and Road. It's the biggest investment initiative in our era. So it's so important. That was Eric Soheim, former executive director of the UN Environment Program. This is Road Today. We'll be back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back. You're listening to Road Today. Russia has halted its participation in the Black Sea Green Initiative that was due to expire on Monday. Russia Foreign Ministry spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said Russia had officially notified Turkey, Ukraine and the UN of its objection to the deal's extension. Moscow has for months complained about the implementation of the Green Pact, saying that elements of the deal allowing the export of Russian food and fertilizers have not being honored. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said Ukraine was prepared to keep exporting grain via the Black Sea despite Russia's withdrawal from the deal. Russia and Ukraine signed separately with Turkey and the UN on the Black Sea Grain Initiative in Istanbul in July last year. So to delve into this and more, let's have Pavel Falkenhauer, Moscow-based columnist and military analyst. Thanks for joining us, Pavel. Uh, yes. Uh, hello. Uh, first of all, what do you make of the reasons behind its decision? Could you elaborate on Russia's position on this suspension? Well, the Russian um, authorities uh, have been for a long time complaining that uh, the Ukrainians are getting benefits, but uh, the Russian part of the deal is not implemented or implemented not fully. There was quite a number of complaints about the um, problems of transferring money for Russian uh, grain exports, and Russia was insisting that one of the big state-owned banks, Rosselhozbank, that's under sanctions, be connected by the Europeans back to the uh, SWIFT uh, money transfer system. Uh, there had there was kind of some kind of proposal. Um, put together by the U.N. Secretary General that um, subsidiary of Rostov-Kosovan could be given 
access to space. Russia says that's not enough. Then there were problems with Russia exported Russian fertilizer, and especially Russia was insisting that the export of ammonia by uh, a Soviet-built pipeline resumed mm-hmm. through Ukraine, through Odessa. That pipeline was actually recently blown up. So there was pressure building in up in Moscow to uh, end this deal. There was a belief that Russian exports will continue as they are, and uh, so there's no need to continue it. For, for some months, this pressure was building up in the Moscow elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, the move has caused many concerns from the UN and uh, other nations. So how do you assess the implication of Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Green Deal on global food security and the stability of food prices in the medium to long term? Well, in the medium and immediate term, apparently there will be not much immediate uh, 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 negative results at all. Uh, there is enough grain around. Also, Ukraine has uh, found other ways of exporting grain, not through uh, sea routes through the Black Sea, but say right now they're uh, exporting a lot through the Danube and uh, through a railroad to Europe. So that's, uh, and of course, Russia is also exporting a lot. So apparently, immediately, there'll be the effect will be a negative. Also, there's apparently a belief on the world uh, food uh, markets that there's some kind of deal will be reached at the end of the story, that there's going to be wrangling, and in the end something will be organized, and something will continue. So immediately there is no serious effect. In the midterm, most likely too, but in the long run, there could be. Mm-hmm. Then from Ukrainian perspective, uh, how would you characterize the impact of the collapse of Black Sea Export Corridor on Ukraine's agricultural sector? Well, I can't with them. Uh, there will be, of course, some negative effects, but not dramatic. Uh, the uh, Ukrainian farmers have found other ways of export. And, of course, Ukraine is a major exporter of grain, and especially sunflower and sunflower oil. Uh, but that, right now, is not the basis of the Ukrainian financial system, mm-hmm. uh, because they're getting very enough conflict with Russia and getting massive military and also financial aid from the West, which is keeping, uh, helping them keep their kind of budget and economic system financial system working. So again, uh, negative results will be, but not dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said UN will continue its efforts to facilitate the access to global markets of food and fertilizers from Ukraine and Russia. Then what measures or strategies can the UN, the United Nations adopt to mitigate the potential disruption to the world food programs and ensure um, the continued supply of wheat to countries in need? Well, Secretary Gutierrez has been very much a champion of this deal. He has just recently wrote a letter to uh, President Putin calling not to uh, uh, scrap the uh, uh, Black Sea deal. Uh, uh, He will, of course, now express his disappointment, but says he'll continue and the UN will continue efforts. Not that the UN can do... uh, that much, but they can do much. There's going to be diplomatic pressure on all sides to uh, resume this uh, deal, to provide uh, cheap grain to different countries uh, that are in need. And so the UN has, of course, a role to play. Uh, it's, it's not maybe the decisive role, but it's an important role. And they and Gutierrez has pledged to continue to press for some kind of solution. Mm-hmm. We know Turkey has also played a significant role in signing the deal. In response to Russia's withdrawal, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said, despite the statement, Putin wants to continue the agreement. He seems very optimistic about the prospects of the Green Deal being maintained. How do you read his remarks and Turkey's role in the coming days? Well, Turkish, uh, the role of Turkey... Uh 
and its president, Erdogan He was one of the main organizers of this deal, and he was keeping it alive because in Moscow there were well, there was a lot of criticism of the deal, and there were actually Russia uh, for a short time left the deal last year, but uh, Erdogan was uh, negotiating directly with the president. Putin helped to dis- uh, restore the deal, and now apparently he's going to again use his personal connection to Vladimir Putin to put it back together. Turkey has lots of ways of putting pressure on Russia. It's, uh, Russia uh, Turkey controls the straits that lead to the Black Sea, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. And they can put a lot of pressure on many parts of, not only grain, but uh, many parts of the Russian economy, like oil exports, which are very important and may be delayed if Turkey decides, saying that they could just put uh, tankers with Russian oil on a waiting list for not letting them into the straits. But right now, he, he believes that he has so much uh, kind of pressure possible. Of course, Russia can put pressure on Turkey, too, so it's a very complicated and very deep relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's quite possible we should look out that in the coming weeks, if this deal in some form is going to be restored, it's going to be President Erdogan doing it. Mm-hmm. So if, he can, if Turkey wants to, they, they have the biggest kind of pivotal role in keeping the deal together and possibly restoring it again. Thank you very much, Pavel, for your time and insightful opinions. That's Pavel Falkenhauer, Moscow-based columnist and military analyst. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up-to-date presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. You are listening to Road Today. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is on a three-day tour of the Gulf region, beginning with Saudi Arabia and followed by Qatar and the UAE. Erdogan, accompanied by a team of some 200 business people, said the visit aims to bolster regional ties in many fields, focusing on joint investment and commercial initiatives to be realized in the upcoming period. The visit comes as Turkey are hit with sales and a few tax hikes. The official annual inflation rate stood at 38% last month, down from a high of 85% in October. So to talk more on the trip, joining us on the line is Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow in the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Thank you for having me. So first of all, how would you characterize the trip, given that Ankara has recently repaired ties with Saudi Arabia and the UAE following a decade-long rift? To my understanding, I think uh, this shows that, uh, you know, uh, the Erdogan now has a, a great plan not to try to re-establish and re-strengthen the relationship with those uh, Middle East countries. Uh, you see, especially after himself, uh, you know, uh, Wayne, uh got a new election, this victory, and then we are getting to a new journey under his uh, new term. Actually, uh, you know, we all know the Saudi Arabia and uh, Turkey, the relationship wasn't that good, especially uh, after the year 2018, uh, Saudi, uh, uh, you know, the Kasuki uh, was, uh, you know, uh, killed uh, in, actually happened in Istanbul, in Turkey. So ever since that event, and these two countries' relationship uh, wasn't good at all. But now, uh, with the years passed, and then the relationship uh, gradually warm up, mm-hmm. especially this year, a uh, recent uh, with a half year so so on. Uh, we all noticed that the Middle East the general momentum mm-hmm. now no longer as same as before, uh, because Saudi's relations with uh, Iran are uh, even now becoming uh, good. Uh, re-establish, reopen the embassy uh, in each other, and then those Yemen conflicts also is cooling down uh, because the two uh, players behind those Yemen conflict they already shake hands 
So a lot of things. And the U.S. also withdraw from Afghanistan. So with this Middle East, uh, this, uh, you know, re-approaching with each other, uh, getting, uh, you know, more and more. I think now Turkey, Erdogan himself, personally, now he has his own agenda now. Uh, mm-hmm. How to warm up the relation with Saudi and then how to mutually, you know, uh, get some beneficial things from each other, this relationship. Now it's in his agenda. Plus, uh, Erdogan now with the Russia's relation with this uh, Ukraine, uh, this crisis going on. Also, now it's somewhat uh, changeable. Uh, so I think uh, now he's playing another card for how to make a new uh, Middle East security uh, beneficial for uh, Turkey. Speaking of Erdogan's agenda, given the challenging economic conditions in Turkey, what specific trade and investment opportunities is Erdogan seeking in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states to help boost the Turkish economy? Oh, yes, uh, because Saudi Arabia uh, is the major uh, this resources producer, particularly the oil, a big producer country, and also Saudi Arabia now is on the way realize the 2030 uh, this uh, mission so it also wants to diversify the economic relations uh, with uh, those uh, big players especially like uh, uh, those uh, even Iran uh, including Iran and uh, Turkey as well you know the Turkey actually the economic situation wasn't that good uh, especially in the recent one or, one or two years uh, we often hear saying uh, the currency uh, devalued and the inflation is up so in order to uh, doing some new uh, those uh, driving forces for Turkey's uh, economic uh, this growth. Erdogan also needs other, uh, especially those uh, stronger countries in the area, including Saudi Arabia, uh, like uh, UAE, uh, Qatar. You know, the Qatar seems a very better situation, especially you know after this FIFA, uh, the World Cup has been taken place in a very successful way. So those countries. Uh, serving as uh, like a somehow a uh, rising star. Uh, they have now the capital. Uh, they have uh, like uh, even the experience for building the e-business, uh, digital economy. Uh, saying, it seems like, uh, uh, you know, running ahead of Turkey. So that's why I think uh, Erdogan now also wants to build a stronger relation with those countries and then to get uh, some beneficial things in mutual, like uh, investment, especially and newer some investment from uh, like Turkey, uh, from the UAE and Qatar, uh, even Saudi to Turkey. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. He, for your time. That's Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow from Chinese Academy of Social Science. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>